So we're going to start reading On the Road to Emmaus on page 749 at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, we should spend some time in prayer. Uh, can I invite you to uh, <clears throat> join me, with me as we pray? 
Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for your word. And uh, we pray now for ourselves and also for the children as they study your word, that by your spirit that you would be opening our eyes, that we would see more of Jesus and that we would live our lives in his service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we're in, when we're in the midst of a trial, something which is difficult or painful, we can become somewhat anxious and fearful, uh, especially when we're being, uh, when we don't really understand what's going on. Um, but our feelings can change when we learn that what is happening is actually supposed to happen, that it's quite normal, that it's to be expected under the circumstances. Uh, for example, you might be in the process of being treated for a medical issue, um, but afterwards you find that you, you're still suffering, uh, you're still in pain, and you feel anxious that things aren't quite right, that something has gone wrong. It makes a difference, doesn't it, when the doctor comes to you and the doctor, uh, she explains to you that this is exactly what she expected, that this is just the body functioning normally um, through this uh, process and that it will soon be over. So you may still feel in the pain, you may still feel under stress, but it's, it's the kind of knowledge that's got the capacity to, to calm our fears and to, uh, to drive away our anxieties and to give us hope because we know that in actual fact everything is under control and moreover that uh, it will be short-lived. Now, the words disappointed and confused come to mind when we think of the disciples of Jesus and how they felt after his crucifixion. Uh, think about their situation, the, the grief of uh, losing their friend would have been enough by itself. Uh, that would have been shattering. It, it is, it's always difficult to lose a friend and so much more so when the friend is such a young person, uh, a young, in, his, in his early 30s. That's, that's tough. But death by crucifixion, I mean... That's, that's just impossible for us to understand, to comprehend what it is that they would have been going through. On top of that, they were dealing with hopes which had been dashed because they had become convinced that Jesus uh, was going to be the leader of God's new um, kingdom, that uh, Jesus would be the leader of a renewed and a glorious age in the history of Israel. But now he's dead. And so they're just left in this state of being in grief, uh, feeling disappointment, and being confused. I mean, what had the last three years been all about? Uh, you know, the incredible miracles that Jesus had performed, his control over nature his healing of sick people, his driving out of demons, his raising people from the dead, 
his uh, profound and challenging teaching and now he's dead. And so they're left wondering, what was all that about? Uh, what has, what's going wrong here that uh, this has happened the way it has? And so we can understand their confusion. Why had things gone so badly? Now, in Luke chapter 24, which is the passage we're looking at today, Luke introduces us to two, two of these disciples. There's one man who we know, his name is Cleopas. We've, we don't know anything more about him than what we read in this passage. And uh, for whatever reason, the other disciple is, is not named. So we've got these two disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, and they had hung around in Jerusalem. They'd been in Jerusalem for, uh, uh, for Passover. They'd experienced uh, witnessing what had happened to Jesus. And now they've left. Uh, they've left Jerusalem. They're on foot. And they've decided it's just time to call it quits. Uh, it's time to head back home to their, the village which they came from, which was a village called Emmaus. Uh, Luke tells us it's about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. We don't know where exactly the exact location of Emmaus. It doesn't exist uh, today, but it's about 11 k's from Jerusalem and they are heading there on foot. Now, these guys had been stunned by what had happened to Jesus, but what was about to happen was even more stunning because in verse 15... A stranger comes alongside them on the road and it turns out we're, we're told, they're not told, but we're told that this stranger was in fact the resurrected Jesus. And he's come alongside the road, he's walking along with them. And the thing is that they didn't recognise him. Uh, they, did, uh, they thought he was just a stranger, a fellow traveller. And I guess you've got to ask the question, well, why would they not recognise him? He was their friend, they were his followers, why would they not recognise him? I don't know if this, this probably happens to you, it happens to me a lot, that sometimes where I meet someone who I, who I know, but I meet them in a context which is kind of out of context, uh, where I don't expect them, and the way my brain works, it can sometimes take a couple of minutes to figure out who the person actually is. Sometimes I never figure it out and I just go on talking to them as if I, you know, you know what I mean? I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, some people have also suggested, well, maybe it's because Jesus of Jesus' resurrected body that it was just so different to uh, his earthly body that he was completely unrecognisable. Well, I don't really think that that fits either. I think that more likely uh, this is a spiritual issue. Because we're told that God in his wisdom had actually caused them not to recognise Jesus. Um, they would come to recognise him in the course of this conversation, but more than just physically. And let's have a look at that. Now, we are left to imagine the exact conversation that these two disciples were ha having as they walked along with one another, as they processed Everything that they'd witnessed, the arrest, the trials, uh, the, the execution of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, they're processing this, but we're left to imagine the exact conversation. 
Jesus, however, did not have to imagine. I mean, Jesus knows our very thoughts, let alone our you know, words we use in a conversation. He didn't have to imagine what they were talking about, but he asked them anyway. Have a look at verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, so they stopped walking, they stopped, and their faces were, were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to, to Jerusalem? I'll, I'll try that again. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked, as if he didn't know. And it sounds like everyone in Jerusalem knew what had happened. This was a big issue in Jerusalem. Um, but uh, Jesus. Is, is not letting on uh, that he actually does know. Now, that's not being deceitful, by the way. Um, he's, Jesus is not being deceitful. Jesus is being relational. Uh, he's opening up. What he's doing here is he's opening up a fruitful conversation which gives them the opportunity to express what it is that they know and how they're feeling so that then Jesus can take them where they're at and move them forward in their thinking. I think it's a bit like, you know when Jesus speaks in parables? <clears throat> he doesn't actually speak in parables so as to make it crystal clear what he's talking about, like a sermon illustration should do. Um, he actually speaks in parables so that it's, about, it's a bit cryptic, so that it's... Uh, people actually have to stop and think and reflect and think, well, what's he on about here? And as you stop and think and reflect, some people just dismiss what he's saying, but other people, they grow in a deeper understanding and become even more convicted of the truths that they arrive at rather than simply being spoon-fed. And that's great because here we see the, the conflict and confusion in the hearts of these two ordinary followers. Uh, on the one hand, uh, in verses 19 through to 21, these guys had every reason to be downcast. I mean, their world had just come crashing down around them. Uh, but notice how they describe Jesus. They say that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever found yourself, you've, been, you've met someone for the first time and they don't really know who you are and in the conversation they've started telling you about yourself, not knowing that it's you that they're talking to? Has that ever happened to you? Probably not. All these things only happened to me. <laughs> That's actually happened to me. Someone met someone and someone, someone said, oh, here's Scott, he's from Port Macquarie, he's a Christian. And the person said, oh, that minister at the Port Macquarie Presbyterian Church, I'll tell you a bit about him. And I go, this is really interesting. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> Do tell. I hope that never happens to you. But this is exactly what's happened to Jesus because Cleopas is telling Jesus about himself and he doesn't know it. 
And he doesn't have it quite right about Jesus, does he? Because he describes him as a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, yet he is more than just a prophet. Now, they possibly had previously thought that because we're told that they, they said that we expected him to redeem Israel. We expected him to make Israel great again. And now he's dead. Been dead for a couple of days. Just a prophet. Notice also who they blame for his death. They, they don't pin the blame on the Romans, do they? No, they lay the guilt fair and squarely at the feet of the Jewish leaders because they were the ones who had handed Jesus over. Um, but friends, uh, in arguments about who's responsible for the death of Jesus, we all are, aren't we? Because for whose sin did he die? For your sin, for my sin, for our sin. He died for us. We're all responsible for his death in that sense. Now, so these disciples, on the one hand, they are downcast, but we see also that they say that we're also amazed. They're amazed because they've heard the reports of the, the women who had gone to the tomb to, with the perfumes and spices and so on and had come back and told the apostles and all the other disciples that Jesus' body was not at the tomb and that a couple of angels had told them that the reason for that is because he is risen. Now we know how the apostles reacted to that, don't we? Uh, they, they thought that, the, um, uh, that, that these women were unhinged, that they'd lost a few, you know, that, that what they were saying was absolute nonsense. Until Peter, and uh, we, we learned that one or two other disciples actually went to the tomb and they also saw that the tomb was empty. But there was no sight of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, no trace of Jesus himself. So, downcast and amazed, the clear death of Jesus, but now a rumour at the very least, a rumour that he's actually risen, that he's come back to life. Cleopas and his fellow traveller, they're confused and they need answers. So have a look at verse 25. Verse 25 Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, um, foolish is a strong term. Um, that word could equally be translated as how dull you are. But I don't think that matters. The bottom line here is the reality that these disciples have not understood and have not believed the Scriptures. That's why they're in the state that they're in. Now, we often say that the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And it does so in at least two 
main ways. First of all, there are in the Old Testament specific prophecies which describe uh, who the Messiah is and what he'll be like and what he will do. Um, now, I want to just give you a brief sample of that. And a well-known and a very Christmassy uh, example of that is um, from Isaiah chapter 9. Can we just turn to that for a moment? Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, you'll find that on page 489. So, yeah, we're just doing a sample here. So let me read to you from... Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Uh, prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I told you it was Christmassy. But this is a, this is, this is a great prophecy. This is, this is a picture of the great messianic hope of Israel. The picture of God's uh, everlasting kingdom, a, a picture of uh, he who would rule over God's everlasting kingdom, described as mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the picture of God's kingdom which godly Jews pin their hopes on. That uh, men at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Simeon and Zechariah, these, this was what these guys were living for for the redemption of Israel, for the greatness of Israel, for the kingdom, God's everlasting kingdom, uh, which would be centred in Jerusalem and would extend throughout all of the world for all ages. And it's why in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that they lay out their cloaks in front of him, that they lay down palm branches in front of him and that they call out to him, they praise and worship him, saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest and blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Great promise, great expectation, great hope, which must also be read alongside other passages such as Isaiah chapter 53. So come on over to that one. Again, another well-known messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53. And let me pick it up at verses 5, verse 5 and 6. Speaking of God's servant, oh, verse 4 even better. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Clear prophecy. Clear prophecy of the death of Jesus. And uh, down in verse 11, just a, a bit more than just a hint of resurrection life. Now, there are other specific prophecies which speak of the resurrection. And uh, a good hunting ground for those kind of prophecies is the, the book of Acts, the preaching of the apostles. Um, and for example, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the apostle Peter, he quotes from Psalm 16, where he says, which says that God would not allow his Holy One to see decay. And there are other psalms that are quoted in the book of Acts, such as uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. Specific prophecies that deal with the, <clears throat> the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the kingdom of God ruled by Jesus. But it's not just the specific passages which tell us in the Old Testament about Jesus. It's, it's the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus says that he explained from Moses and all of the prophets and all of the scriptures, everything that uh, pointed towards himself. So the great themes of the Old Testament and the tapestry of the Old Testament point us to Jesus. Let me just give you some illustrations of that. Think about the law of Moses. It takes up a lot of the scriptures, doesn't it? Um, what does the law of Moses teach us if you boiled it all down? Well, it's saying this is the gold standard of righteousness. And then you, you, you compare yourself to it and what it shows you is you're not actually the gold standard. It shows us that we fall short of the glory of God and it shows us how much we fall. What do we need? It tells us we need a saviour. Uh, think also about the temple. <clears throat> Big building. Well, the building, it's actually technically the same size as this building here, but that's another story. Uh, a building, but with its outer courts in Jerusalem, uh, with, the, with the inner sanctuary, with the Holy of Holies. What does the temple teach us? Well, it teaches us that God will be present amongst his people, but that because of our sin, we can't just rock into the presence of God. We cannot just approach God that we are estranged from God, that there is a separation between us and God. What do we need? Well, we need a mediator, a go-between. More than that, we need a mediator who offers sacrifices. What does the sacrificial system of the Old Testament teach us? Well, it teaches us that sin must be paid for, that it may, must be paid for in blood, and it's the blood of another. Now, brothers and sisters, this is why in verse 26, when Jesus, talking to Cleopas and the other disciple, speaking about what has just happened to himself in Jerusalem, that he says to them, Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then enter his glory. You see... There's a few things which they've not understood. They've not understood the, the nature and the extent of sin 
as revealed to us through the law of Moses, they've not understood the separating effect of sin as expressed through the temple. And because of this, there's something bigger that they haven't understood. They've failed to understand that before there can be an everlasting kingdom, a la Isaiah 9, that a sacrifice for sin would need to be paid, a la Isaiah 53, and that that sacrifice would need to be infinitely greater than the sacrifice of sheep and goats and bulls. In other words, the death of Jesus on the cross, it's actually precisely what they should have been expecting if they knew their Bibles. And what that tells us is that God has not lost control. God has not lost interest. (laughs) That in fact, everything is under control. Everything is going exactly according to plan. God's kingdom is on track. Now, can you imagine if the Lord Jesus gave you an explanatory tour of the Old Testament and showed how it all hung together and pointed to the gospel? That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? That'd be hard to beat. It'd be better than the last five minutes we've just had. <laughs> that would be, you know, inc- uh, you, you, you can, words cannot describe that, uh, what that would... This is life-changing information. And this was the information which, on that road to Emmaus, started to permeate through the minds and the hearts and the souls of these disciples and change them. I mean... If you were in their situation, if you were in profound grief and in utter confusion, do you reckon you'd be in the mood for making new friends? I I think I'd want to hide away from people. But when these guys got to the village that they lived in, which was Emmaus, they had no desire at all to say goodbye to this new friend that they'd met on the road. No desire at all. I mean, Jesus would have kept on walking but for the fact that these guys pressed him. They greatly wanted him to stay the night with them. I mean, at one level, uh, you can say that's it's not a good idea to keep walking. I mean, um, first century dirt roads at night couldn't be much fun. Uh, chances of falling down a pothole or being a target for robbers. Uh, you know, it would be smart to stay in Emmaus. And so in verses 30 to 32, Jesus joins them now for a meal at one of their homes. There's just three things which I want to point out to you which happened at this meal. First of all, so have a look at verses 30 to 32. First of all, Jesus, we're told, um, took some bread and he said, Grace... He broke the bread and then he gave it to them. Now, what, what's wrong with that? Who should have done that? Well, in Jewish culture, it should have been the host. 
I think it's the same in our culture too, isn't it? I mean, you come over to my place for dinner one night and uh, we sit down at the table. I'm the one who says grace. Cassie dishes out the food and you get to eat. That's the way it goes. But it's not the way it happened here. That's the first thing. Because Jesus is not the host, Jesus is their guest. So something's going on here. Secondly, it was at that moment that the scales from their eyes came off and they recognised who he actually is. Now, why would that be the case? Well, you know, was it because he assumed leadership at the table? Or was it the way that he said grace, the words that he used that struck a chord with them? Or was it as he raised his hands in prayer that they saw the holes in his hands? We don't know. What we do know is that God, by the power of his Spirit, opened their eyes. He's good at that, by the way. God is in the business of opening the eyes of sinful people. That's why we pray, isn't it? That's what we pray for our non-Christian friends and family members, that God would be at work in their minds and in their hearts, that they would, that they would see Jesus, that they would truly see Jesus. And then thirdly, we're told that Jesus just vanished. And I don't think that that means that he waited till they weren't looking and he slipped out the door. I think it's more like in John's Gospel when we're told that the disciples were in a room together and all the doors were locked and suddenly Jesus appeared with them. We're talking about the resurrection body here. We're talking about the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 32, the penny has clearly dropped. Have a look at it. What they say to each other, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Hearts burning, absolutely. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, Peter says that when the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, that they actually didn't know how that was all going to work out. Even angels long to look into these things, says Peter. And here Cleopas and his friends are the first to truly understand how it all fits together in Christ. So far from being downcast, these guys now couldn't wait to get their sandals on. And who cares about the fact that it's dark and dangerous on the road, that they could fall down a pothole, they could be attacked by robbers. Who cares about that? They, they headed straight back to Jerusalem through the dark, where they found that they were not alone because the risen Jesus had also appeared to Simon Peter. And all the disciples were rejoicing. A great transformation had taken place. Now, without the resurrection, the disciples had no hope and the death of Christ made absolutely no sense to them. The problem was that they had not understood the scriptures, our Old Testament. 
Two things about that uh, in closing. First of all, we rightly love our New Testament. When we, <clears throat> you know, you're sitting down, you want to read a passage of the Bible, it's sometimes a bit easier to flip over to the New Testament than to the Old Testament. Sometimes I wish we could rip the page out that separates the Old and the New Testaments because if we, were in, if we neglect the Old Testament, then what we're doing is we're, we're shortchanging ourselves. We're ripping ourselves off because it's as we study the Old Testament, we not only learn about the character of our God and the nature of man, but we come to understand more completely, more profoundly, more deeply the riches of Christ Jesus to whom it points. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that every single promise that God has ever made finds its yes, its amen in Christ Jesus. So that Finally, in all of our anxieties, in all of our disappointments, in all of our concerns for the future, there is a knowledge which has the power to, as the hymn writer says, to calm our lurking fears. There is a knowledge that gives us assurance which leads to confidence which leads then to a sure and a certain hope. Knowledge that tells us that no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what is going on even in our own lives, that God has not abandoned our world, that God has not lost interest, that God has not lost his control, that everything is happening exactly the way it should be happening in terms of God's plan. For the death and the resurrection of Jesus tells us that God's kingdom has already come into effect as people bow the knee to Jesus and trust in him and that God's plan for this world, his plan for our lives, his plan for his everlasting kingdom is absolutely on track. So let's pray about this, shall we? Father, we want to thank you so much for uh, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament points us to Jesus and helps us to understand Jesus which, with a, a profound uh, degree of, of richness. We thank you, Father God, that all of your promises have come true in Jesus, the, that he is indeed risen from the dead. We thank you that he, by his death he's paid for the guilt of our sin, by his resurrection that he's opened up the possibility of new life that goes on forever. Help us, Lord God, to never lose heart. Help us, Lord God, to never move away from that gospel, to look backwards at the death and the resurrection of Jesus and look forwards to our heavenly home. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.